Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adullamite named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua, and he took her as his wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son and named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Shezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, and so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen onto the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So she gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adullamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said, there has been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute. And now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. 
I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. And he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, this one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back. Out came his brother, and she said, what a breakout you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zara. This is the word of the Lord. We need some help after that one. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, you are, we know that you're good. You tell us that you're good. You tell us that you bring us new mercies every morning. And God, I'm thankful that you, uh, you show us that you are in all of the details. You're in all of the great stories and you're even in the messiness. And so God, I pray that you would uh, show, show yourselves to us even in, in the messy stories, the hard family secrets, that we would see not only where you are, even in the brokenness, but how you indeed are redeeming the broken, how you are bringing value to, to those who have been overlooked, unseen, unheard. God, I pray that we would see that today in your word by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So that's probably the first time you've been to a, 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 a church service and heard certain words used in church, I'm guessing, right? <laughs> yeah, so certain people turning really red. Listen, this, this passage, first of all, is almost foolish. Some people would say preachers should just never. They usually skip over this, and if I were smarter, we would. But this is one of those that I feel like we need to dig into because, first of all, it's here. And if all scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for encouragement, then we need to get that out of here. But also, there are some habits that we tend to have when we think about sexual ethics and the disproportionate way in which we view men and women when we talk about sexual ethics. And this is one of those stories that we can easily make some gross uh, mischaracterizations, some misinterpretations, and create some really bad theology. And so we, we need to dig through this and spend some time in this text to figure out what is it that God's even communicating to us here? You know, we talked about this before. Why are some of these stories even mentioned? I mean, there are, there are a number of stories that could have been brought up, that could have been shared. You know, a lot of the things that happen aren't even recorded here, right? There are tons of things that could have been brought up, and yet the author of Genesis sees fit to include this particular story. So, so we need to ask, why include this? Why include this story of Judah and Tamar? We'll, we'll look again at the end, but Tamar is very significant. She's one of the four uh, women that get named uh, in the lineage of Jesus. And so there's something to think about here when we start looking at this, this dangerous, uh, bad woman. You know, there are books out there, Jen and I were talking about it, women behaving badly, right? And anytime we get to a story about women doing certain things, it's immediately, hey, we've got some bad ladies in the Bible. Let me show you, show you an example. And sometimes these are the women, and normally we'll kind of heap this upon other women and say, don't be like this. If you're going to be a godly woman, don't be that. And actually, there's something else that we might be missing in Tamar. So keep that in mind. Ask yourself the question, why is this here, right? Who's, remember who's hearing these stories again? 
You've got these Israelites that are waiting to go into the promised land. And so all of Genesis is, are these stories that are being orally recounted to these folks waiting to go in, trying to be reminded that God is going to be with them, that he keeps his promises, trying to be reminded of how God sees them and how they should see each other. All of these things they're having to be reminded of. And yet you have to ask, well, then why include this story? And so we'll, by, by way of review, let's think through what we've seen already. Ultimately, we've been looking at the patriarchs, beginning with Abraham, and we've been looking at this royal family, if you will, and we've been looking at all of the bad habits and sin heart po- sinful heart postures that seem to reproduce over and over and over again in different ways, sometimes in identical ways. And so we've, we, it's interesting here, another question to ask is, why is this story kind of breaking up the Joseph story? we got 13 chapters of Joseph, right? We started with Joseph last week, and we saw what happened there. We saw that uh, Joseph's brothers, ultimately out of jealousy, rivalry, dissension, they sell their brother into slavery. And shortly after that, I mean, this, what's interesting is after all of that, you would think that it would just kind of be, all right, we're going we're gonna to move on and, and follow Joseph. And yet the author sees fit to stop and go, Meanwhile, back at the ranch, like it's almost, it almost feels like, like a soap opera. It really does read like a soap opera, and I'm very partial to it. When, we were, when I was living with my mom growing up, we had one TV, and so if you, and she would, that was back when there was something, younger people, there was something called a VCR, and you used to use that, because you couldn't just like record things whenever you wanted. You had a machine, and you set a timer, and don't get that timer wrong, because your parents would get mad at you. And, and so my mom was just like, listen, you got to tape my stories for me. Turn to your neighbor and say, stories. (laughs) My mom would have me record these stories, and her show was all my children. If I had to hear about Erica Kane, one more again. So so I would have to record it and watch. And the crazy thing is, there would be the most outlandish plot lines, just crazy stuff. And she would be waiting, my mom would be waiting with bated breath to come back and find out which husband Erica Kane ended up being with. Was it Tad? I don't remember the names, but whoever they were. What happened with these people? It's crazy because we look at that and we're like, oh, that's just wild. That's crazy. The Bible reads a lot like that. This family story reads very much like a soap opera. And if you watch a soap opera, again, something will happen, something will happen. And then it's kind of like, meanwhile, at the home, this is happening. This is where we find ourselves. So remember what happened. Joseph has been sold off, right? Well, what are the rest of the brothers doing? Well, we see what Judah's doing. You look at the very first verse. At that time, right, that's the time when Joseph was sold, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira. Now, this is the thing that we see happen with some of the relatives of Abraham. God's made clear, uh, you all are supposed to stay close. You're supposed to be close to each other, not just for ethnicity's sake, but for spirituality's sake. You guys have a given promise given to you from God, and not only are you supposed to be around each other to remind each other of that promise, but also when, if and when you are tempted to, to, to forget or reject that promise, you've got other people there to hold you accountable. That's something that we always need. If you're in a relationship with folks, you can be Listen, we all want that DJ Khaled in our life that tells you you're the best all the time. Everybody wants that. But if all of your friends only tell you how good you are, they're not your friends. 
You need people to help remind you of the times when you're like, hey, we love you and we're for you, but there's some things that you're deviating from that actually is not a picture of what God's promised. And we need people to remind us of that. So Judah does something different. After doing everything he did, we already saw a lot of his character, right? Remember, he was the brother that at first was like, hey, yeah, let's kill our brother. Then later, well, we could make some money off of him. He is our brother after all. So, so he's, he already is this incredibly selfish, self-centered uh, person. We've seen that on display. And we've seen that through all of his dad, grandparents, great-grandparents. We've seen that throughout. So now Judah leaves. He leaves his family, leaves this community of faith, and he goes among the people that God tells them to avoid, the Canaanites. And again, this is beyond just they're not the same ethnicity. This was these folks practice a form of faith that is, that is pagan idolatry. They practice things that would actually draw your heart further away from God. There's no way that it would be in good conscience, it wouldn't even be prudent to go and spend your time. Keep in mind, it's not like he's hanging with his family and then going out and hanging with these folks. That's its own issue, right? But he actually leaves his family and sets up an entirely new community with a group of folks that are not actually in his best, not for his best interest. And so he goes to this man, uh, Hira, the Adulamite. And Hira was really kind of like, his hype man. Here was the one that was basically going to tell him, you're the best. Do what you want to do. You want to come and get, you want to figure out ways for you to gratify yourself? I'm going to be the person. He's kind of that person, right? Certain, certain people have friends where it's like, if I really want to get in trouble, I know who to call. That's, that's, we've, we've all known or had that friend. Maybe we'll admit it, maybe we won't, but we all kind of know that person that's like, you know what? I'm just ready to quote unquote, let my hair down. I'm ready to almost forget who I am in God for a minute because I want to be reminded of what my flesh does. I got a friend that's going to help me. That's who here is. So he goes to, he, he moves out there. He's hanging out there. He's made his, basically made his community there. And so he's hanging out near uh, the Adulamite named here. And then Judah saw the daughter of Canaanite named Shua. And he took her as a wife and slept with her. The second issue. So he, he really should have been amongst his own community of faith, did not, moved into this area where people are pagan idolaters, and then he finds a wife among the people that God warned them not to, not to mix with because of spiritual reasons. But he does it anyway because, because why? Focusing on his own self, his self-gratification, what he wants. Sometimes, right, the scripture says that there's a way that seems right to a man, right? There are times where I feel like I know something is so dangerous when I trust what I feel more than what God's already said. Something's really dangerous when I go, you know, I, I get what God has said, but, I, but my heart says this. My heart tells me this, and, and, and I, my heart can't fail me, right? We've quoted it many times. Jeremiah 29 says, the heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? The worst thing you can do sometimes is to trust your heart. The best thing you can do is trust what God says to actually change your heart. So, so now you've got uh, Judah just kind of following his heart, following his, his predilections, following whatever he feels in the moment, he can go do it. If I feel like I want to enlarge myself this way, I'm going to go here. I can make businesses here. I can build relationships here. I don't want to be, maybe it's I don't want to be reminded of, what, of the guilt that I've left in my past. So I don't deal or confront my past. I run from it. That's what I call getting over my bad stuff. So we'll say that like, well, that's in the past. I put that behind me. Have you or did you just run from it? Because actually confronting it is something different. 
but he doesn't. So Judah uh, goes to this area where he shouldn't have been, takes a wife that he should not have taken, but okay, he does. And uh, they have children. So she conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son, named him Shelah. It was at Chezib that she gave birth to him. So Judah's got a family now. He's got his wife. We don't really know anything about her other than her daddy's name was Shua. That's all we know. But we know that he's got these three kids, these three sons. And when he gets older, because the, the, most, most theologians think that when he moved away from his family, he might have been about 15 or 16 years old. So now you've got several years that elapse. Now he's got his sons, and as they get to a certain age, uh, Judah does what was common in those cultures, to go find a wife for your sons. Remember, we talked about this before. Be very careful about over-romanticizing marriage in the Bible, because we, we live in a different time right now. We now marry for love. Most people didn't. Most people got married because it was a, a business arrangement. It was a way to, to sustain your livelihood. It was a way to ensure that you would actually continue living. If you owned property and you had to take care of that property, you needed children to help tend that property. That was a way to actually ensure that you could survive. And if you were a woman, that was the only way. That was the only, sadly, that was the only value you brought to the table. Your beauty and, and your ability to bear children. That was your currency. That was your currency. And, and so it's, it's, it's important to remember that because if that's the culture that they were living in, then you now understand the power dynamics that are at play. That means if, if you're a woman, your currency is this and only this. For men, you had a much more uh, varied approach to what currencies you could bring to the table. But you had much more privilege as a man, which meant what? It was godly men's responsibility to steward that privilege well for the women who did not have it. And you see that is not the case in this story. And so uh, what does Judah do? He goes to find wives for his three sons. They need heirs, right? They need to, because ultimately it wasn't just having any children, they needed men. Because again, the, the primacy was on having boys. The privilege was afforded to boys. And so he finds a wife. He got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, Ur's, uh, now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. We have no idea what he did. I don't know how bad it was, but we can, we can guess some things. Here's the thing. These guys have been raised in a very selfish family. They've seen that recapitulated over and over and over again. And so it's not to say that every time a kid messes up that it's the parent's fault, but it certainly could be a part of it. Because sometimes there's just certain values. It's one thing when a kid decides on their own, when a child decides on their own to reject certain values that have been deposited into them. It's another thing where you can see that a child has never had those values deposited at all. And when you see the same problems happen over and over and over again, we're left to believe that there's really not a whole lot of deposit that's happening here. There's nothing that's been put into this. So something was incredibly wicked about Earth. There's lots of theories. Don't know for sure. But there was, a lot, there was something wrong with him. And this is where you get a sense of God's wrath. And it's scary. And it should be scary. Because honestly, today, we have a sense of we love to be in awe of God's presence. 
We love him. And ultimately, when we say we love him, we love him because of how often we're reminded that he loves us. And, and that's good, but that's not the, the only story. There's a sense of reverence for God's holiness that we still have to maintain. And there's, today, that is something that's kind of, we lose a little bit of that. Because people have abused the, the holiness side of it so much, people have found ways to take things that aren't even necessarily holy, put that on you like a, like, like a massive chain around your neck and go, are you holy yet? Are you holy yet? And so we do the pendulum swing and go so far away from that because we want to feel loved and cared for and hugged and kissed and coddled and cherished. And all those things are good to a degree, but then that's it. We, 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 we don't have any sense of reverence and holiness now. And see, God puts these things in the story to remind us, I love you, I cherish you, I give you grace and mercy, but I'm still holy. But, I'm, but you still have to be reverent because I'm a holy God. And anytime there are things that line step, anytime there are ways that we deviate from that standard, he reminds us that he's still holy. Now, we pray that it's never to this extent. This happens once in a while. Right? We saw it here. We saw it with Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Certain times, we don't know when God's grace or mercy just cuts off at that moment. But for whatever reason here, cut off. So he did something wicked. We don't know what. He could have been caught up in a lot of the idolatry of the land. We don't know. But God just strikes him dead. And so now there's a problem because Tamar is, is, a, is a widow. Her husband's been killed. You gotta remember, if you're a woman and your husband dies, you're probably gonna be left to, 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 to rot and die an old woman uncared for. Because societies, really throughout the history of mankind, the people who often are not taken care of are widows and orphans. That's why when God talks about what true religion is, to care for whom? Widows and orphans. Why? Because they're always the ones that get left out. They're always the ones that get taken advantage of. And so Tamar knows this. Any woman growing up would know that. Ultimately, if you ever read a Jane Austen movie or watch a Jane Austen movie, you see this, right? My only value is the ability to be a wife and a mother because otherwise I will not be cared for. We, when, when, you, when you think about that, now you start to put yourself into the shoes of Tamar here. Anytime I've heard this preached, the one voice we don't seem to actually hear, we hear the story, but we don't stop and go, what was happening for Tamar in this story? Yeah, we want to know about Judah, and, we, and there's lots of really great stories about the patriarchs and the men that are involved. But man, God went out of his way to include the story of a woman here. We don't get many of those. Where, what was happening for Tamar? Can you imagine the fear she must have felt? Oh, my goodness, my husband is dead. Where am I going to go? I'm a Canaanite woman, so it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm actually really one of them. So I probably can't stay here anyway. Where am I going to go? And so... They ultimately decide, because there's already this, this process or this uh, tradition, right? There's a custom that if uh, someone, if a husband dies, then the custom was to have his brother uh, uh, have a child with it. This would be weird if this was us right now, right? Some of y'all are going, I, I, some women here are like, there's a brother-in-law I can't even imagine, right? Thankfully, that's not the case anymore. But this was very much the case back then. You, in order to ensure that an heir would come through, this is what they would do. So he goes, hey, listen, uh, I'll find the brother of Ur, Onan. You will now go and, and, and make a child with, with your brother's wife. And Onan gets to this point where he's kind of thinking, well, 
this doesn't benefit me in any way. Like, if she ends up having a child, it's not my child. It's not my heir. It's only to keep the name of the older brother going. And see, this is where the selfishness comes in, right? Because again, like father, like son, like grandfather, like son, this is where it goes. How does this, what's in it for me? What's the real return on investment for me? There really isn't. So, so what does he do? And this is where it, it gets, this is where people don't typically preach. But this, what does he do? He literally decides, instead of uh, getting my, this, this woman pregnant, I'll just spill the seed. Now, this is why we have to talk, touch on this for a minute, because there are movements that have taken this passage, as people are prone to do, take it completely out of context, and then make a whole new doctrine and theology off of it. So there are some who would look at this passage and go, well, uh, if you notice, God got so mad when this man decided to, 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 to spill his seed as opposed to impregnating his wife, and that's the reason why God is against birth control. That's the reason why God is anti-birth control. You know why? Because he's pro-conception without excuses. That's not the story at all in this text. Bad theology leads to bad practice, always. And oftentimes the bad practice ends up harming people. So when you, when you play that out, we've talked about the history in this country, but when you play that out and you look at what that looked like for women, up until really the, the middle of the 20th century, if you were a woman and you were married, you just had as many babies as your husband determined. That was it. Now, you would think in, in an agrarian society, yay, because we've got like more hands on deck. But as we moved away from an agrarian society, that's a, it creates a whole other host of challenges, doesn't it? Not to mention just popping out babies all the time can be really hard, I hear. So, so, so now what ends up happening is, in many ways, when, when you don't have any choice in the matter and you have no way to determine just whether or not you want to be pregnant or not, in many ways, that almost turns into a form of, 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 of being almost enslaved and enchained to something. It doesn't mean that people were like, I don't like children. It's just, I don't necessarily like feeling like I'm forced into this over here, and I have no choice in the matter. So whenever people would come up to say, hey, we just want to give women the ability to determine whether or not they get pregnant, the moment they started to do that, we had laws in this, in this country called Comstock laws. These laws were laws that were put in place that would put women in prison if they just had any form of contraception. You see, it's, it's, it's interesting when, and this is, this is what often happens, it's very common for the people who are privileged, men in this case, to have more to say about what happens with women's bodies. And, and oftentimes, when that happens, guess what? The injustices that, that occur, because there's a majority men who are making the laws, they don't feel what happens on that end. They have no way of empathizing, but they'll have a hollow, abstract, possibly theological argument for it, and all of a sudden, people get harmed. When you look at what happened in the, in, in the early 1900s, and you saw tons and tons and tons and tons of women that were f trying to do different things to not be pregnant, some women just dying. You, and then let's, let's not mention what would happen if you were a woman and you happened to be assaulted, or you happened to get pregnant after being assaulted. You were a pariah. No one would look at you the same. You couldn't, very few women could even work during the time. That was at a time where women couldn't even get a line of credit unless they had a husband to sign for them. So it wasn't like they had, it wasn't until 1970 that all over the country, women could just get a line of credit. State by state, it was different, but the majority, of the, that wasn't the case. And so to look at how, going all the way back, we're talking thousands of years here. This has always been the dynamic for women. 
It's always been the dynamic of if the men don't get it, we can't possibly get it. If they don't hear where we are or understand where we are, there's nothing we can do. And so Tamar definitely felt that. But the incredible thing about Tamar is she ends up doing something that I would say is almost heroic. So we'll touch that because that's the big controversy. How do we look at uh, Tamar? So Tamar uh, immediately after Onan does what he does, God kills him. You're like, man, that feels awfully harsh. He kills him. Instead of impregnating his wife, his brother's wife, as his duty was, which would have been what the obedient thing would have been to do, right? Because in many ways, this was the primary way to ensure that Tamar would be cared for. See, this was an act of justice. This wasn't just, uh, I don't know, he's not going to have, you know, he, he, he might have my head, I got a big head. No, I don't really know if I really like, I don't know if I want a kid. I'm not ready for that. It wasn't even, had nothing to do with that. It was man, in order to ensure that she will be cared for well, in order to be sure that she will actually have provision, this has to happen. There's something unique about the fact that even in the midst of that culture, God still had something in place to really try to protect women in a culture that didn't. And so, Onan decides not to do it. So when you look at this, this isn't just, okay, the moral of the story is don't ever spill your seed. That's not the, that's not the story. And I have to say that because about six months ago, I had a friend from years ago call me up. He and his wife had gotten into an argument because he was using this text as proof of why some things needed to happen. And so he was lovingly rebuked. <laughs> I hope he listens to the sermon because he brought it up. <laughs> But, but so we need to think about that. This was bigger than just uh, behavior stuff, right? This is bigger than just behavioral stuff. Why does God care about this? Because God really does care about protecting all of his image bearers, not just the men. So Onan dies. He's out. Two, that's, two, that's two brothers down, one to go. Now, here's what's interesting. Judah looks at this. He sees this situation. How would, this is where for parents, okay, when you look at, if you have children, look at that for a minute. It, even if you don't have children, when you look at little kids and you see what's being deposited in them and what's not, if you see a pattern of things happening, ultimately you got to go, something must be happening at home. If the first boy was so wicked that God killed him before he ever did anything with a woman, and the second one got killed right after being with a woman, either the problem is the woman, or the problem must be the family and the culture that created these men. But what our tendency is, is to always blame women for men's sin. That's our, that's our tendency. That's where we go, specifically sexual sin. So when there's sexual sin, the first thing we'll go to is her. What did she do? The first thing we'll go to is how did she get herself in that situation? The first thing we'll go to is why would she put that on? It never goes to what kind of men grew up in a culture that would allow them, make them feel like it's a, an appropriate thing to do these things with this woman. Yes. That, we don't start with that. Rarely do we end with that. Yes. Ultimately, it's what did the woman do? She's the one that's guilty. If she was smarter, this would not have happened. And so when you think about what happens next, think about this. Judah ultimately thinks, I'm not, okay, I know that by law, I've got to give you my third son, Sheila. Somebody made a joke. It was like he must have wanted a girl, but he didn't get one. He named him Sheila. I think it's really stupid, but I had to throw it out there anyway. Here it is, his third son, Sheila. And, 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 and this boy, he's, he's too young to be married at this time. He's too young. And Judah knows what the law is. He knows what he should do, right? 
okay, I need to make sure that, that she ends up now being espoused to, um, to Sheila. And when Sheila gets older, they'll be married. So he tells her that. But see, the scripture tells us he was very worried because he didn't want to lose a third son. You know what that means? Either, either he recognized there's something wrong with this woman or he recognized there's something wrong with us. I think he thought it was something wrong with the woman. I think we have every reason to think that he recognized in his mind, he thought this woman is bringing this bad luck on us. Why? Because you don't see any acts of any type of, of repentance. You don't see any, you don't see that here. You'll find that later, but you don't see it here. What you see now is doing what we are prone to do. Must be the woman. Must be her. Bad luck follows. First dude was out. Second one is out. Only got one left. And so he makes a lie. He lies to her. He tells her, hey, I got you. When Sheila gets older, that'll be your husband. You'll be good. But for now, go live with your dad as a widow. He was just trying to get her, get rid of her. He was like, I really don't want this on my hands. I don't really want to have to deal with it. I don't want to have to be the one to take care of you. So go on out of the way and I'll pacify you with this, with this lie for a minute. And so she does. By law, she does what she, what she by law is to do. Now, you, you, here's the other thing. Legally, though, there was another act she could have done in this moment. I found this out later that uh, the, uh, a, lot of, a lot of biblical historians will bring up the fact that in that time, if a man does this, and he does not, what should have happened is a complete agreement should have already been laid out outright so that it could never be uh, pulled away. So that even when Sheila got older, there would already be documentation in place that says, you will be uh, married to this man. He just made kind of a quick word of mouth agreement to get rid of her. By law, she could have taken off her sandal, smacked him in the face and spit and said, you did not keep your promise. By law, she could have done that. Some of y'all kind of wish she did do that. But she trusts him and she takes him at his word, right? Because oftentimes women have no other choice but to just take you at your word. I don't have the force of the law behind me. I don't have anybody that's going to enforce some of the things to take care and protect my rights. I don't have any of that. So I just got to take you at your word. So she does. She goes to live with her, her father again. And so he says, remain in, in, in a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up, for he thought he might die too like his brother. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So time goes on. Decade or two maybe. We don't know. But a lot of time. That's a long time after you've lost. Imagine what Tamar is going through. She's just been, keep in mind, these women weren't choosing the men they wanted to marry. So she's already been shipped off. We've seen that story time and time again. Goodness, Jacob, he got his wives basically in a BOGO sale. Buy one, get one. That's pretty much what he got. They just would almost ship off women like it's inventory. So, so these women, it's not like they have the choice. They don't get a chance to go, do I love them? Do I not? I don't know. They don't have a choice. They can't just say no. So she's been shipped to one man, he's dead. Shipped to another man, he's dead. How is she feeling in all of this? And so now she's like, well... I, I can't do anything else. I got to wait. I have to hope that when this guy gets old enough, he'll be the husband for me so that I can be taken care of. If I get, and I hope, thing is, I hope that when I do get with him that I can give him a son because that's going to be the thing that holds me. That's going to be the value I can bring to the table. So she's living in all of that anxiety. She's living in all of that uncertainty. What if he doesn't keep his promise? What if my dad dies? You think about that. What, what if my dad dies? What, what do I do? 
Where do I go? Who's going to take care of me? And so here she is trusting. She goes to her father's house. And after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. So now we come back to Judah. All this time has gone on. His wife is, has died. He mourns. And then we get DJ Khaled again. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. Now, this is, this is really interesting, too, right? Because um, it's, it's, it's interesting when you think about what's happening for Judah, maybe even emotionally, right? He loses his wife, and he finishes mourning his wife. And then he calls up his friends like, hey, man, it might be time to get in some trouble, man. I'm depressed. I've been going through. I'm, I'm lonely. You that dude, man, come on. I need you to set some things up for me. So he ends up going, hanging out. And he goes up to his sheep shears. Now, what history tells us is during this time, uh, there was a major festival. Sheep shearing festivals were huge because you've been growing out the, 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 the wool of your, of your sheep. And now it's full enough that you can now shear them and then start selling them. So there was this crazy festival that would celebrate the bounty that was now coming because you had all of this wool that you could sell. There was a lot of money to come. So big celebratory thing. So it, it makes sense then that he would call his dude up like, listen, we're getting ready to basically go to like Essence Fest. And, and I want to make sure that I can get, I don't know, that's, that's like Coachella for some of y'all. Um, and so we're getting ready to go do this, and we're getting ready, to, it's getting ready to be big, it's going to be popping, and you, it's your job to set up the ladies. And that's ultimately what it looks like happens here, right? Because he gets to this spot, and it's, it's all this great stuff, and sheep shearing, and getting ready to make some money, and, and, and he gets up there, and then here's the other thing that happens. He's on his way up to Timnah. Now, I don't know, we'll, we, we may see this down the road if we ever preach on this. This is the same place that Samson was going when he did almost the same thing. See, this stuff happens, and, it, and if it doesn't get checked, this stuff recreates itself over and over and over again. And so now you see this situation where he's going his way up, he's on his way up, getting ready to get in some trouble. He's got his dude with him that knows how to set things up for him. And then Tamar hears a little, gets a little note, right? You see, what's Tamar been doing all this time? I'm sure that amongst the women, she at least has been able to say, I'm really, really sad and broken because here's what happened to me. Guess what? Sheila's grown now. She should have been married to this dude. Her justice should have already come. And it hasn't. Why? Because what man's going to speak up for the justice of a woman that's not protected? When has that ever been the case? And the moment that women begin to speak up, then it's like, you're too loud. Why are you talking that loud? Why don't you be kind? Why don't you be sweet? You seem really cold. It, it doesn't start with, wow, you're actually speaking out of the brokenness of your situation. And you're speaking out of a place where you've not been defended well. Your justice has been completely ripped away from you. I need to hear you where you are. I ought not tone police you. So she's sitting there just, just probably thinking, I can't tell anybody this except for the other women around me. So she's probably been telling them these stories. Y'all, he was supposed to already have given me my husband, and he hasn't. Who knows? There might be other people who have eyes on Sheila at this point. And she's like, I, I guess if that happens, I and by law, she can't go and be with anybody else because she technically is still only supposed to be for him, and everybody else knows that. But she's just kind of there. She can't do anything. Dad's older. Dad's a couple decades older now. What is she going to do? So they tell her, by the way, um, your father-in-law, your ex-quasi-twice-over father-in-law, that weird thing that happened with you, he's, he's on his way. 
Now, here's, what, here's what's interesting. She immediately goes, I got to hatch a plan. Now, the way that this story ends up getting told, depending on who's preaching it, usually men, is there's this sultry, seductress kind of story. And so you turned her into this slithering, uh, uh, reprehensible woman. Because that's the best way we get to tell stories for women is to cast them as these seductress, kind of very, very uh, 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 untoward human beings. So now... She's making these plans, but these plans aren't to say, hey, I can't wait. I just want to go, quote, unquote, trap somebody. I even hate that word the way we use it, and it's very common to use it specifically in male context because no one can be trapped unwillingly. It doesn't work that way, fellas. You don't get trapped. You get foolish. You don't get trapped. And so here she is in this situation. Now, why is she in this situation? We already know why she's in this situation. So now what happens? Now she's like, my best chance for justice is this plan, is this approach. She's not out here because she wants to be this loose person. She's out there going, I just want to advocate for myself. There's nothing else. And guess what? My only currency is this. Society made me this. Society tells me that this is my only currency. So I'm going to use whatever currency I can to bring justice for myself. And we have the nerve. We have the nerve to start to cast judgment on that first. We, don't need, it, we rarely, if ever, question the system that necessitated the response. All we will do is criticize the response and the responder. So, so, so now we're looking in this, at this woman who's making this very difficult choice on her own. This is not her lifestyle. This is not what she's done. She's been trying to hold to the promise that was given to her. And now she's getting, putting on clothes to look a certain kind of way. Now, here's the thing. Why does she know to do that? Because she knows what kind of man this dude is. She knew, she knew what it was like when she was with his homie. She knew what it was like when he went to Timna. That's how they said it. You want a Timna? Oh, really? What happens in Timna stays in Timna, right? Okay, okay. So he, 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 she knows what to do because she knows his habits. She knows his sinful practices that have gone unchecked all his life. She knows that's been the pattern for a lot of the men in that family. So she's like, I already know where the weaknesses are. And since they realized that my societal weakness was something to be taken advantage of, then the best I can do is try to take advantage of this for me. And so she does. And she puts on uh, this uh, clothing. She took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Anaim. Now, here's what you have to know. Because, again, we could look at this and just completely miss the significance of this part of the story. Why does she, first of all, change her clothes? Why does she put a veil on? Well, a veiled face was a sign of a temple prostitute. You had these pagan temples, and they had all these different pagan gods, and they would often, uh, and a lot of times, these women were forced into that. They had no choice either, but they would be forced into uh, making money, selling their bodies to various peoples, and in the name of these various gods and goddesses. And here's the thing. This is how you know that Judah was not a man of faith, was not a godly man, because Judah had no problem messing with the temple priestesses. We know that. Because when he comes, comes up on her, it's not even like this awkward. He, he flowed like he's done this before. You know, it's like there are times where uh, somebody's doing something and they're really nervous because it's like, I've never done this before. And then you get the people that like just say that every time. I've never done this before. Yeah, but you seem to do this really loosely. Like you, you probably have. He did it very easily. This wasn't one of those new times for him. He comes up, he sees her. 
Soon as, uh, he, as soon as she uncovered herself, she's on her way to Timnah. She saw that, uh, as we see here, she saw that though Sheila had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face. Because he knew the drill. He was like, I'm, I'm lonely. My wife's been gone for a while. DJ Khaled hooked me up. I'm getting ready to satisfy myself. And so he goes and he sees her. And look at what he does. He walks over to her and he says, I mean, this is like, this is like the worst game. It's just most direct. Maybe people like that. It's just super direct. Like, come, uh, let me sleep with you. That's just it. No whining, no dining, none of that. No, po- no poem, no flowers, nothing. It's like, oh, I see that you have a, you, you're here to make money. You're here for a duty. Come do your duty. That's it. So he does. He goes to her and he says, come, let me sleep with you. And, he, and this is when it gets really interesting because think about where she is. Now she, this is, this could be disastrous for her. This could have been disastrous already, right? Because even before he saw her, we don't think about the risk that Tamar is taking upon herself. Think about the risk. You see, you know who was never protected from assault? Prostitutes, even to this day. Never protected. And if they are assaulted, you know what the collective mindset is? Well, that's occupational hazard. Should have made better decisions. You do realize that the majority of people who are doing that kind of work never grew up wanting to do that kind of work. This isn't to say, yay, let's champion this work. What this is to say is there should be a brokenness that we all have when we go, Lord, what kind of system is in place that would ever make this number of women feel like this is their best option? Not to mention the women who have been forced into this as their only option and are trapped in such a way that if people, this is why people will often say, Is it right to even criminalize these women first? Is it right when you see these women in the situation and say, let's throw them in jail first? As opposed to, wait, what what things have been in place during this time that makes this woman feel like this is the only choice that I have? And so she takes that upon herself because guess what? If somebody just saw her on the road, they could have done whatever they wanted to her. And then... They could have killed her. And guess what? The story would have been, hey, Judah, they caught your ex-daughter-in-law, you know, da, 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 da. I guess she was the reason why your sons died. See, all of this could be on display for her. She's got the shame of her own father to worry about, all these things. But she does this. And on her, she, she, she goes, he sees her, he says, hey, let's do this. And she says, this is, this is like very bold. Well, what you, will you give me for sleeping with me? What will you give me? For sleeping with me. He says, I will send you a young goat from my flock. Now, I don't know if that will work today. <clears throat> I wouldn't suggest trying any of this. But yeah, goats. But goats were very valuable, right? Goats were valuable for a number, not just for what you could get from the goat, but the money you could make from having a goat. And so that was a very valuable thing. And so he says, I'll, I'll give you a goat. Now, clearly, she wants something much more than the goat. See, it's not enough. She clearly, she wants something more than that, but she, this is the best thing she can do. So he says, uh, I'll give you a goat. Well, he's there with his sheep. He didn't have a goat with him. And she sees that. He says, I'll give you a goat. She said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. Well, what should I give you? She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. 
Now, this in and of itself is another very bold ask. Very bold ask. Because, and this almost has to tell you a lot about even Judah's mindset. Because I think that a lot of men in that situation would have been like, no, I'll send me the next one. Because nobody is getting ready to ask me. You realize that the cord, the signet ring, this was ultimately your sign of power and privilege. This is actually how you demonstrated your standing in society. This is your American Express black card. This is your forms of identification. This is how people know I have to, uh, if somebody has this in their hand, you got to listen to what they're telling you. He's putting his own privilege in her hand. We don't ever see this for women. He puts his very privilege in her hand. Now, this tells you how desperate he was and probably how lonely he was. I mean, think about that. Man, I'm, I'm so lonely. I'll, 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 I'll give you my mortgage. Can I just have this one night? <laughs> and that's where he is. So there's a, a whole other sermon to be said about the, the, the desperation and the foolish decisions that you are wont to make in those states. But, but beyond that, he, he offers this to her. And he says, okay, these go- this goat, I'll get it to you. But, and if you don't trust me, take everything that makes me who I am, that proves who I am. Take my privilege, take my power, hold on to this. I'll make sure you get it. And then he goes on to her and he sleeps with her. And then she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, removed her veil, put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, because, you know, he can't go on his own. It would look real bad if he shows up looking, hey, have you guys seen this prostitute? I got a goat for her. I'm like, for what? What you been doing? See, he can't, he can't just do that, so guess what? You got to get his friend, DJ Khaled, to, to set him up, to hook him up. Hey, go back and uh, go, go, you know, get that girl the thing I told her I was going to give her. And so he goes looking. He doesn't find her. And they're like, listen, they said there's no, there's no cult prostitute around here. We don't, we don't really know. We can't find her. He went around and asked. So when he re- went to Judah, couldn't find her. Besides, the men of the place said there's nobody, any kind of cult prostitute that's been here. And Judah said, well, let her keep the items for herself, which is just wild. Let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. See, at this point, he's, he's so worried about his reputation, he doesn't even care if he gets those items back. Those items are vitally important. You could, when, when you would send a message and you would take that signet, signet ring, put it in wax, and seal a letter, no one could open it unless they had that seal or unless they had the permission from someone with that seal. This was, this was a big deal. And he's like, I, I don't even want it back. I'm, I don't even want that to come back on me. Just, hey, listen, if you don't find her, you don't find her. No big deal. I had my fun. I'm, I'm good. That's his attitude. And so he says, keep it. And after three months later, about three months later, Judah was told, hey, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. And look at his response. Bring her out. Let her be burned to death. Now, y'all, there's so many ways we can sit and talk about this, but here's the thing. There is no question that culturally, between men and women, we have always, always been much more vitriolic about women's sexual sin than men's. Always. We've always looked disgustingly at women for any particular sexual sin and looked very differently at men. And especially if you are a man who has done your share of dirt, and then you see a woman that has done dirt, and it's really easy to go, yeah, but she's real nasty. When you think about his response here, 
Think about the way that he talks about his daughter-in-law. First of all, they see that she's pregnant. So they know clearly she's been with someone else. They see that she's pregnant. And they see that she should not be pregnant because they know that technically she's espoused to Sheila. Isn't it interesting how they just see her pregnant and immediately assume how promiscuous she must be? She's been, she's been running around like a prostitute. Where do they get that? How, how did they get that? And nor are they going, we need to, what man was with her? That doesn't come up. Because the moment, something about sexual sin, the moment that this happens, we automatically assume that it happens like it happened with the Virgin Mary. Like, we assume that this happened solo. We don't even stop and go, man, it, it definitely took two here. But see, here's the issue. The problem is that throughout history, this is why, for a very biological reason, women have always had to bear the shame of this. You know why? Because if you're a man and you got someone pregnant, there's no physical evidence on you for anyone to see that. So you can just walk around and just do you. And there was no DNA, so it wasn't like um, a a paternity test was going to pop up on you. So basically, your best defense was, wasn't me, and keep going. But see, for a woman, there is no defense, because guess what? You've got a big tummy. So everyone sees, biologically, you've been with someone. And so you've got to sit in the shame of that. And so he hears that she's pregnant. They, this is what's scary. So many times our own biases get, our biases get superimposed onto the way that we tell the story about women. The way they tell the story about this woman, she's been acting like a prostitute. The best they could have done is just said, hey, Tamar's pregnant. That's pretty direct and to the point, isn't it? But they had to add colorful details that were not even backed by anything. See, this is why Many times, for, for women, they feel like, man, I, I, from what I have heard, and even some of the women here, there's this degree to which you almost don't want to tell any part of your story because everyone's filling in blanks the whole time you're telling your story. Everyone's automatically creating this other picture of what type of sexually promiscuous person you must have been. And so now you feel the need to almost go, well, let me give you extra details so that you don't think I was that kind of person. That shouldn't even matter. So she's telling, or she ends up being in the situation where she's pregnant. The stories have gone on about her. She now has been called a prostitute. She's been acting like a prostitute. They go to tell her father-in-law, technically. And he responds, let her be burned. Let her be burned. it's, it's, It's unconscionable, and yet if it weren't so similar to what we see now, you'd think it was just shocking, but it really isn't shocking. It's what's shocking is that we still almost act the exact same way right now. That, that this, this woman is now saying, I mean, Judah realizes what, he knows what he did, but he can put that in the back of his mind and he goes, oh, she did that? I'm ready to meet her with the wrath of God. You see, there's something about, and this is how you know when we're not walking in humility, when you are always more angry about other people's sin than you are your own. That's a good sign that you lack humility. When the vitriol that you bring to somebody else's sin is less than the ones you bring on yourself. You see, if you can't do that, and the other thing is, oftentimes people are so loud about other people's sin when they really struggle with those same sins. I'm always wondering, like, there's a disproportionate degree to which people will bring this anger and frustration to a certain sinful issue. Yeah, sinful issues for sure, but man, you really seem really worked up about that one. 
That's how you have to start identifying and maybe evaluating yourself to go, man, I'm extra worked up about that. Is there something on a deeper level for me that I need to check? Because, man, my wrath for that exceeds my wrath for some other things, specifically my own stuff. Judah just, in his mind, just slept with a prostitute. Then he hears that his daughter-in-law was acting like a prostitute, and he's going, well, she needs to die. He doesn't start with, Lord, have mercy, I should have been dead. See, that's what humility does. Humility goes, it's only, either it's only by the grace of God that, 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 that I'm not there, or it's only by the grace of God that I haven't suffered punishment for that. It's only by the grace of God that I've not had to face the wrath of God for this. But that's not where he goes. He does what we are prone to do. And he's ready to throw the book at her. So he says, bring her out. Let her be burned to death. And she was being brought out. And she had to have this whole thing. I just think, I think Tamar is such a boss in this story. And I never thought, growing up, reading this story, I would have never thought this. Because the way this story was always told, it was just almost like, a little blip in this, really, this woman that was super shady, and somehow God used it. <clears throat> but she ends up taking agency for herself in a way that you never see women do. <clears throat> and so he, she, she's being brought up, getting ready to be burned, right? Getting ready to be punished. And on her way up, she says, uh, hey, by, by the way, hey, send him this message real quick. I, I got a few receipts for him. I got a few receipts for him. So let him know, hey, listen, uh, send this signet ring out. Let me know who's, which man this is. T talk to your mans in them and fi find out whose ring this is. Because the moment you do, you might learn some things. Take this cord with you. Talk to your dude. Find out who that is. Then come back with this burning talk. You know how crazy that is for her to do that? I mean, that's like, I mean, she is like really big up. I mean, I can't believe that she's that bold because she's sitting here going, not only is she being bold, but that could be looked at as just, you're super uppity. You're a woman. How dare you? Somebody could have done anything to her. And yet she gets up and says, check these receipts and come back to me. And so they, they send them out. <laughs> she says, examine them. Judah recognized them and said, oh, oh, snap. <laughs> Oh, man, I'm dead to rights. And look at how he says it. He says, and this is something that even today you don't hear men say. She is more right than I. And then he starts to back up why. Because he realizes I didn't do my job. I didn't hold up my responsibility. The, the, it's beyond just the, the actual uh, terms of the contract, beyond just uh, make sure that you give a son to her, that's huge, but it's the why behind it. My job was to protect her. My job was to ensure that justice would be served for her, but I didn't do that because I've been so focused on me. I've never truly cared about her own justice. I've not cared about her provision. She's been more righteous than I. And, and, and that in and of itself should really jar us because that is where the heart of God is always. When we just get into the letter of laws without thinking about the heart behind those laws, that's how you harm people. And you do it in the name of God. You do it in the name of God when you constantly push the letter of a thing and completely overlook the heart of it. 
And now he's realizing, I have missed the heart of God. I have missed it. I have not embodied it. I am not looking like the, I'm not looking like the image of the God that called me. I'm not looking like the image of the God that made these promises. This is the first time that you genuinely see real contrition. You see a brokenness there. Because now, could it just be? Because man, you know, what if this turns back on me? What punishment might I face? We don't know. But we definitely know this. Somehow, that's why it's kind of a funny title for this sermon, because ultimately, is she really behaving badly per se? It depends on how we think about it. But ultimately, he looks at her and says, she's actually the righteous one. And, and this is where we start understanding righteousness beyond just individual behavior, right? Righteousness and what it looks like. Righteousness is absolutely wrapped up and married to justice. If you're not committed to genuine justice, don't tell me that you care about righteousness. If, if you don't understand how justice and righteousness and holiness are woven inextricably, stop saying you want to be righteous. You, you, you want to be pious, but you don't want to be holistically righteous. And see, if he wanted to be holistically righteous, he would have been like, absolutely, I'm going to make sure my daughter's taken care of. Sheila, how old are you? All right, we've got a wedding to go to. Let's do it. But it wasn't that. Why again? If he had started with, there's a way that I've raised my sons that shows that I've not been about true holiness and righteousness, that would have checked him. But he was so worried because guess what? He probably knew Sheila's just like me and the rest of his brothers. He'll probably be taken out too. This is why it's always important that we start every time. Lord, let me be. This is the prayer, and I hope it's the prayer for all of us. Let me see myself as the chief sinner in my own home. Let me, see, let me then be the chief repenter in my own home. And we've said this years ago, but let me say it again. When you, when you hear that, when you hear Paul use phrases like that and say things like, I'm the, I'm, I'm the chief sinner, I'm the least of the apostles, how can he say that? How, how can he say that? He didn't know it, but he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Like, he was a, he's a superhero in the Bible. How can he say he's the least of the apostles? How can he say he's the chief sinner? It doesn't mean that the ways in which his sin have manifested carry the same consequences as some other ones. That's not what we're talking about here, because you can easily do that. Create the ledger and go, well, my sin is nowhere near as bad as their sin. So here, here's the issue. When you walk in humility... And the closer you get to God, the more acquainted you become with your own sin. And you should always be mourning your own sin far more than anybody else's. And when you're mourning your own sin much more gravely than other people, you always walk in humility because you realize, listen, I'm the worst sinner I know. You know why? Because I don't know you like I know myself. I don't know your story like I know my story. I don't know your dirt like I know my dirt. So I can never mourn your stuff more than mine. The moment I do is the moment I'm exalting myself. I'm walking in pride. I'm not walking in humility. And so this is the first time that you see this happen. He can actually say, she's more righteous than I am. She put on the clothes of a prostitute, engaged in activity that she should not have done, and yet she's the more righteous one. Because this was never about just the behavior, y'all. Sin is, is rarely just about the behavior. There's always a sin beneath the sin. How do we get to the sin beneath the sin? And he's just not seeing it. It might be the first time you see it in this family that somebody's starting to see, man, I've got a, there's a family problem here. This selfishness is popping up. And so he said, she's more right than I since I did not give her to my son Sheila and he did not know her intimately. 
again. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it, tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing this one came out first, and then he pulled his hand back. Out came his brother. She said, what a breakout you have made for yourself. That sound familiar? We've seen this earlier. Because again, there's still contention. It's, it's interesting how God will use even these aspects of childbirth to paint a picture, constantly showing them there's contention in your family. There's always been, and as long as you don't root this sin of selfishness out, there will be, because here's the thing, selfishness is both caught and taught. So when you're sitting in a family and you see selfishness constantly on display, demonstratively, all the time, I don't care how much you try to tell your child about not being selfish. They're like, Dad, Mom, I would love to be able to hear you, but the volume of your actions are too loud. The ways in which you keep putting yourself first, it's too loud. So there's got to be something else where we're constantly saying, Lord, check me of my own selfishness. Help me to realize the ways in which I exalt myself. The ways in which I kind of, I constantly put things in place so that I always come out on top. And if that's my mindset, Lord, I know there are people I'm overlooking. There are people that need to be protected by me or by my actions or the ways that I live, the ways I live in community. The way, there are ways that I'm supposed to truly care about them, but my selfishness impedes that. And this is where we find ourselves. So listen, the last thing I'll say is this. When you look at this story and you think about what this means about who God is, the first thing you see is, why in the world would God include this story? The thing you see is how God is actually saying, yes, culturally, this is where these dynamics are. And yet God is saying, I'm actually for justice for women. Like, I, I, this, is, this is why you don't see any kind of punishment levied down on her. Because ultimately, she's, she's doing what you should have already done for her. The second thing, the... The most beautiful thing about this story, if you can call this story beautiful, because I think it's an incredible one, the most beautiful thing about this story is, out of all the people that God could use to bring the Savior of the universe through, he uses selfish Judah and Tamar. When you look at Matthew 1, you see a whole list, a whole genealogy of Jesus, and guess what woman's named? Tamar. Guess what man is named? Judah. That's why we say he's the Lion of Judah right? Wasn't nothing special about Judah? You know why we need that? Because we need to know that God is not in the business of finding the most holy people to choose to use to serve. We actually need to go, man, Lord, if you're using me, it's not because of how holy I've been. It's not because of how great I've been. It's not because of how right I've been. It's not because of how much theology I know. It's solely because of the grace and mercy of God. That's it. Now I don't have, now I can't walk around and go, y'all need to be like me. If you were like me, you'd be used. If you acted and thought like me, you'd be chosen. That's not how God works. And he includes the ugliness of these stories to remind you, you don't need to run from the ugliness of your story because I'll redeem it and I'll use you. That's the gospel. That's what we hold on to. That's the only hope. So this is why it almost in many ways takes the pressure off. Your job is not to try to figure out a way to scrounge your way into righteousness. Your job is not to try to figure out what checklist can I make so that when people look at me and when God looks at me, I'm worth it. How do I earn my way in? Judah didn't earn it. Tamar didn't earn it. Rahab didn't earn it. She's listed too. And she actually was a prostitute. Why does God include this? See, we said this last week. 
We don't need to run from the ugliness in our stories, y'all. We don't need to run from the things that might seem to be really embarrassing. We don't have to do that. We can confront it, see it, embrace it, and go, Lord, redeem me from this. Lord, I can rejoice in the fact that you have redeemed this part of my story. Now, here's the redemption that's needed for us today. How do we then see women image bearers the way God does? This is the question all the time. How do we see it? When you look at what Tamar did, if that were to happen today, I can just see it. She says, hey, let me know whose who signet ring this is. You know what we would do? What kind of woman keeps something like that? What kind, of, what kind of woman are you that keeps something like that? That just tells me something about you. Why would you hold on to something like that? that, that just, I, I just don't know. You know what that is? That's our, that's our own biases coming up because ultimately we don't ask, man, what kind of culture are women living in where they feel the need to have to hold on to something? Because guess what? No one's going to believe them if they ever have to tell the story. No one's going to believe them. We talked about this before, specifically with assault. If you already know that certain things happen, you already know that 97% of men who are, who've committed rape actually never even go to court, then you know that you're going to get away with it. We said this last, or two weeks ago. What we brought up was an incredible statistic that actually assault and rape is the one crime you have the highest likelihood of getting off on. So if you know that already, how in the world can you immediately go, yo, I'm going to question her character. I'm going to question her sexual habits. I'm going to question all this stuff because clearly she just wanted, wanted to get into some stuff and then things got caught up for her and now she feels bad. That's not how we see each other well. That's not how we look at image bearers. That's not a redeemed way of looking at image bearers. The first thing that should have happened, she knew she had to prove it because she knew that her word would never be enough. But what happens in the kingdom of God is your word is enough. If you say that something's happened, I'm going to listen. I'm going to, I'm going to humble myself to hear your actual story, to hear where you're actually, your, your actual pain is, to hear the ways in which justice has completely overlooked you. And then guess what happens? As a believer, as a person that says, I'm walking with a God who says, I'm coming to restore all things and make all things new, I want to be a part of that healing. What do I need to do to see this brokenness mended again? Not, you need to prove to me that you're worthy of being believed. You see, this is almost the same picture that we see at the very end when Jesus sees the woman that was caught in adultery. And she's caught in adultery. And we talked about it before, and we think about this. What's really interesting, though, is what happens when the men come and they're ready to stone her? And we don't know what happened. We just know he wrote something. And he wrote something and wrote something, and, wrote, and all of a sudden, it freaked them all out, and they just went their own way. Now, there's a part of me that wonders if this isn't a little bit similar to what Tamar does, right? Because Tamar just had receipts to say, yeah, the same man who's wanting to take me out, it was him. What if Jesus was doing that? Hey, this woman caught with adultery, you with the stone in your hand? Yeah, you were Tuesday. You with that stone? You were Thursday. You see, Jesus is constantly in the business of pointing out, hey, the sin that you really want to get other people for you're very much guilty of it, and you've never done business with me. So don't think you can go do business with her. Amen. Jesus is about justice, yes. specifically justice for those who don't have it, who have no voice to speak for them. And so we need to be committed as a church. Lord, how do we see women the way you do? How do we protect women the way that you've called us to, the way you modeled for us? We cannot say that we're about holiness 
and righteousness if we don't care about justice for women. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, God, I, I pray that you give us true eyes to see the brokenhearted, specifically women who have engaged and dealt with so many heartbreaks, ways in which they have not been seen, been heard. Father, I pray for those here today who have felt that sting, felt that shame, felt all the ways that they have been made to feel less than by the very people who are guilty, by the very people who have done some of the very same things. God, I also pray that you would, that you would truly convict us for the ways in which we bring a wrath that's not even yours. Ways in which we come down on people for things that we are guilty of and we don't have the same vitriol for ourselves. God, I, I pray that you would give us such a sweetness and, a, and a, a gentle spirit to hear the brokenness and that our minds would not go to, to filling in blanks with our biases. So God, I pray that we would all be convicted and we would all admit my biases were on display in this moment or in this moment. And God, when we see people who are making claims, God, I pray that we would start with all the things that people stand to lose for making such claims. I pray that we would immediately enter into the anxiety, the fear that's there. Father, give us wisdom to know how to love. Well, give us, give us your heart in the law and not just the letter of the law. God, we pray for your spirit now, in Jesus' name, amen. As we come to this table, let this time be a time where we actually do business evaluating, praying, and thinking through, Lord, how have I seen other people? How, specifically, how have I seen other women who have gone through situations like this? Do I see them with, that, with the same eyes that God has? You know, we always say we want to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And many times we'll have a hatred for a thing that's not even where God's hatred is. And we feel justified in that because we have our own self issues that are going on. So this is the time. This is actually the time for us to go, Lord, I need you to plumb the depths of my heart and, and help me see ways in which I'm not seeing people well. Because if I don't see you well, I'm not able to love you well. And if I'm not loving you well, I am in sin. I am in sin. This isn't just a, 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 a little perturbation in my personality. This isn't just a, a little chink in my armor. It's not just a little weakness. If I don't see you well, I don't love you well. I'm not loving you as, as my neighbor. I'm not loving you as myself. I'm guilty of sin. So let this time be a time where we stand and we go, Lord, I, I'm convicted and I'm seeing the ways in which I've not loved people well because I haven't seen them well. I think about what my first go-to reaction has been when issues of these kinds of things happen and I know where my mind goes. Lord, I know that there are ways in which I might have made women feel like they can't even share or talk about their story because there's just all of this built-up shame and guilt just waiting to fall upon them and I've been a part of that. This is the time that we repent. This is the time that we confess this to the Lord. Because here's the thing, no matter how bad, this is bad, this is awful, there are people who have been hurt and pained by this, but you also need to know, this is the kind of sin that Jesus still does forgive. This is the kind of sin that Jesus actually uses to remake us. 
That's why this time is such a beautiful time. That's why when we come to examine ourselves, that's the very grace of God on display. Because now it's the grace of God that starts to melt your heart, gives you eyes to see, I have missed this. And Lord, you're helping me see it now. So if this is true for you, and the truth of the gospel, the truth that I am desperately in need of a savior to reroute the way that I think and feel and see, if this is true for you, then this table is for you, this meal is for you. If that's not where you are, if that's not what you think, if that's not where your heart is and your joy is, either A, you just don't believe that this is who Jesus is to you, or you just don't know that this is a real sin problem and you don't, the way that you've continued to see women specifically, and you just don't see anything wrong there. Or you don't have a, you see it's wrong, but it doesn't make you feel particularly bad or broken. You don't have any real intention of repenting, real acts to show repentance. Let this time pass. Not because we're about who's in the club. Let this time pass. Because this is time to say, Lord, I need you to do business with me then. Come and approach in true humility. Lord, I need you to do business. I need you to show me. I need you to break me. And then come. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that here at Icon, we do communion by the process of intinction. And so what that means is starting in the back, you'll walk down the middle aisle. You'll take a, a piece of gluten-free bread and you'll dip it uh, in wine or juice as you see fit. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, blood poured out for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. Here's what Paul says. Paul says that every single time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Why are we proclaiming this? Because every time you turn on the news, you're reminded of how broken we really are. We are reminded of all the ways that we don't love each other well. We're reminded of all the ways that our greatest efforts just don't seem to cut it. And so we're constantly reminded, I don't have a prayer of being who you've called me to be. We don't have a prayer of being the people you've called us to be unless Jesus is who he said he is and that he's coming to make all things new. That's what we hope in. So if that's your hope, if that's your joy, if that's what you're clinging to, not just your righteousness, not just your great resume, not just the book that you read that made you more woke, but ultimately, I need Jesus, and I need him to come, and I need him to remake me. If that is your hope and joy, then come, be convinced, be reminded, taste and see that our Lord, our God, our Savior is indeed good. Let's eat together.